I'm Belinda Ongaro. I'm Dan Hackborn. And I'm Timothy Arthur. And you are listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. For those of you who have never tuned into Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies. We're a group of masters in library and information studies students here at the University of Alberta. And every month we bring you fresh, exciting, library and information studies centric news. Hey y'all, remember when we all disappeared in the Halloween episode and then we aired a rerun in November because we were so committed to the storyline? Nothing to do with the fact that we were all just super burnt out. But for real, mental health is super important and we all need to take a break sometimes. Well, I am glad we are finally back for December though. What a wild year this has been. Wild. And it's just about to come to a close. So sad. In honor of the holidays, we've decided that today we would gather around the virtual Christmas tree and have ourselves a merry little gift opening episode. But these aren't just any gifts. We'll be opening gifts from the library. So get cozy, light up the fireplace or the 2020 dumpster fire video if that's more your jam. And let's get started. Okay, so if no one's opposed, I guess, I'll just get us started with this one right here. Oh, joy. My very own Macmillan ebook policy rescindment. Just what I wanted. So this is a nice little gift from 2020 that had a lot of groundwork laid prior. Short story, just over a year ago, one of the big five publishers, Macmillan, announced some pretty heavy restrictions on how libraries can access new eBooks, putting a limit of one on the number of digital licenses a library is allowed to purchase for the first eight weeks of sales, citing a fear of libraries cannibalizing sales. Fast forward to March of this year, Macmillan rescinded this policy after a large campaign, hashtag ebooks for all, spearheaded by the ALA. Now, this one thing might not seem like such a big deal given everything else that was happening in the world at the time, but it speaks to a larger reality that libraries have to contend with moving forward, the overwhelming transition of our knowledge onto digital infrastructures. Now, I'm not one of these people saying that the book is dead, I want to clarify that I don't think book digital is even a meaningful binary. What I do believe is that digitization is simply another part of our knowledge environment. And if libraries are, in fact, about knowledge rather than books, which most of us list students would agree with, I think, then we have to reckon with the digital realm as much as the print realm, or even admit that the two are deeply intertwined. So I am really grateful for all the people, the library workers and others, the organizations like the ALA and the Canadian Urban Libraries Council, and even those of you who signed the petition put out by the ALA, uh, those people who put a lot of work and effort in behind the scenes or in public into making Macmillan back down in this way. But I just realized I totally forgot about my stocking. Let me just reach on in there. Cole, well, that's no fun. No fun. I don't think I was that naughty this year, not in the behavioral way, nor in the sexy fun way, sadly. 
Well, anyways, this lump of coal is vocational awe, defined by Fabazi Attar as the set of ideas, values, and assumptions librarians have about themselves and the profession that results in beliefs that libraries as institutions are inherently good and sacred and therefore beyond critique. Here's a quick quiz. What famous librarian said this? <clears throat> Today we are in another time of social tension. We face real issues that will take a long time to work through. Massive economic transitions from globalization and technology. Fallout from the 2008 financial crisis and polarized reactions to greater migration. Many of our issues flow from these changes. In the face of these tensions, once again, a popular impulse is to pull back from free expression. We're at another crossroads. We can continue to stand for free expression, understanding its messiness, but believing that the long journey towards greater progress requires confronting ideas that challenge us. Or we can decide the cost is simply too great. I'm here today because I believe we must continue to stand for free expression. Did you get it? Well, it was famous librarian Vic. Oh, wait, sorry. It was uh, actually Mark Zuckerberg. But it's exactly the kind of empty words that are told to us that we tell ourselves or that we are taught along with other associated myths like gatekeepers of knowledge and stewards of democracy. And this is quite frankly, absolute arrogance and a narrative that allows us to pretend that nothing about the contemporary practice of librarianship should change even while the entire world is changing. The Macmillan thing is nice, but it was reactionary. It's not magically going to stop happening as the big five becomes the big four or the big three, as more video content moves to streaming platforms and less of these companies feel like it is worthwhile to include libraries in their business models, like Don Katz, the CEO of Audible, who said, quote, we kind of decided the public library is just a place that people will get a smaller collection from others, other audiobook producers, and that's fine. But we'll continue to react on a case-by-case -case basis to issues like that, all the while inviting these same corporations in through the front door, allowing Google to surveil our patrons and Microsoft Office 365 to surveil our staff, while we ape the same arguments for an obsolete understanding of free speech that social media magnates do. Meanwhile, anti-vaccination disinformation runs rampant during a pandemic and corporate propaganda is directly responsible for climate change in action. But sure, centuries old ideas of how free speech works are still the best approach to our contemporary information environment. It's all okay, because we're the library. Who do we allow to enjoy the benefits of free speech? Who gets their data protected? What is the role of the library here and whom do we serve? That was a huge lump of coal, Dan. It's almost as if libraries aren't perfect. Who would have thought? Tim, why don't you open your gifts next? All right, I've been waiting to crack this one open. I'm super excited to see what's inside. Oh man, it's also a lump of coal. Who did this? <laughs> it's lack of free expression in the workplace for librarians and library workers. <laughs> you shouldn't have. So this relates to what you were saying, Dan, about vocational awe. Libraries are held up as these ideal public platforms for the free exchange of ideas. Then this is used as a defense for platforming harmful speech, as we've seen 
over and over again with controversies over room bookings, like when the Toronto Public Library booked Meg and Murphy despite an outcry from the trans community last year. And the irony is that in these situations, you don't often hear librarians or library workers themselves at the libraries in question speaking up in disagreement with their library's policies. And that's not because all librarians agree with those policies. It's because they don't often feel free to speak up and question the library that employs them. So libraries, on the one hand, are idealized as these bastions of free speech that have a supposedly unique and important role in society for that reason. And then on the other, when issues of free expression for library workers come up, the library is treated as just any other workplace where librarians and other library workers as employees can be punished for expressing views contrary to library policy. Of course, the amount of freedom that librarians have varies from library to library. And the big exception is that some academic librarians are tenured and given academic freedom, but this is increasingly rare. This whole process is part of what Sam Popovich refers to as the re-proletarianization of librarianship, which describes how the professional status of librarians is fading and the privileges and power that come along with that status are fading with it. And this is caused largely by the infiltration of more strict business thinking and structures into public sector institutions like libraries. One way to counter this trend would be more active labor or professional organization among librarians and library workers. That can be risky and difficult to engage in in an environment where free expression is not already well protected for workers. So it's a difficult problem to address. And thankfully, I've got another gift here. Hopefully, it's not also cold. Oh, nice. It's a book. Libraries still have books. And you can check them out. Isn't that cool? For free. That's so cool. <laughs> so I got the best. The story of a new name by Eleanor Ferrante. So I've been really looking forward to reading this. This is the second book in the series, the first being My Brilliant Friend, which I found really remarkable when I read it. I haven't actually been doing that much reading in the pandemic, but that was one book that I read and I found it really impressive. So I'm wondering if you guys have been doing any reading lately as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mostly for school, though. <laughs> <laughs> well... I just finished rereading Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote and absolutely love that story. I love the movie, even though it has some problematic elements, but we're not going to go there. Um, and now I've started reading also a reread Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon and oh, incredible story. So good. Highly recommend. It's the first in the series and I have not yet read the sequel or I believe there might be a third book as well. Um, but yeah, that's on my, that's on my to read list for this vacation. I'm really trying to get back into reading this, this break as well, because 
as I said, I haven't been reading as much as I should, but I find that when I read, I feel better than when I don't. Although I, I suppose reading isn't, isn't for everyone, but I really do find it therapeutic somehow. I do too. I find it's really central. I find it's really central to my identity. And if I'm not reading, I just feel out of sorts with myself. And when I start reading again, it's like I come back to who I am. It's, it's super weird, but yeah, I love books. Nice. I have been reading Mirrors, Stories of Almost Everyone by Eduardo Galliano, uh, which came highly recommended to me. And I won't lie, I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack for this, but I found the beginning very twee, and I haven't really gotten into it yet. Mm. And I just read, uh, reread Bride Story by a uh, manga by Mori. And it's been really great again this time. And honestly, because readings taken up such a huge portion of my schoolwork, I have been sitting down with the 1995 BBC presentation miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, and I just find it a delight. So hopefully over the uh, break sometime, I wanna, I wanna finally sink my teeth into Jane Austen and uh, read a bunch of Jane Austen novels. Yeah, I, I highly recommend Persuasion. Ooh. No, I also have not read Jane Austen somehow. Isn't that shocking? Maybe we can come back and do a little book club. We should have a Jane Austen book club. Into it. Also, Dan, I also recommend the BBC miniseries of Tess of the Durbervilles. Okay. It's super good. That's, that's not uh, Austen or the Brontes, is it? Is not no. That's, That's Thomas Hardy. Oh yeah, I don't know. I'm interrupting trying to. Right, <laughs> <so, laughs> it's it's not Jeopardy. Who is Thomas Hardy? <laughs> All right. Well, I also have a couple of presents to open, so maybe I will go next. And what have we got here? Well, would you look at that? It's the elimination of late fees. Well, conveniently, I've just finished reading Sense and Sensibility, Late Fees Do Not Belong in Public Libraries, nod to Austin, by Lori Eyre, where she briefly discusses the main issues with late fees. Believe it or not, late fees are actually entangled with the oppressive history of libraries, not to mention that it's simply an outdated practice that really doesn't make a lot of sense in the grand scheme of things. First, studies have shown that the removal of late fees doesn't actually affect the likelihood of people returning their items. If people are going to return an item, they'll return it whether or not there is a fee to punish them. If they happen to lose the book during a move or someone borrows it by mistake, a late fee isn't going to change that outcome. And you might think, well, aren't late fees an important source of income for libraries? But they actually can end up costing the library or just resulting in a net zero because the library needs to pay people to enforce the fees. Then we have good old library anxiety, because who wants to return to a library where they've racked up a ginormous late fee? The library has a history of being unwelcoming and cold, so the removal of late fees can only help us to shed that negative stereotype. Furthermore, these late fees are not on a sliding scale, so they actually selectively hurt those who are experiencing financial struggles. 
The small fee may be trivial to most, but for others, it can discourage them from using the library entirely. And for children, charging a late fee rarely does anything to encourage responsibility because usually it's up to the parent to bring them back to the library to return their item anyway. Several libraries have recently made the decision to eliminate late fees and are we ever grateful? Now it seems I have a second present here as well. Just open this. Well, would you look at that? It's a lump of coal, specifically the Lady Bountiful archetype. Gina Schleselman Tarango discusses this concept in her article, The Legacy of Lady Bountiful White Women in the Library. Essentially, the Lady Bountiful archetype is an intersectional concept shaped by white supremacy and ideal femininity that rests on the notion that women may not be the main agents of patriarchal oppression, but that they can act as a vehicle for it. In the context of libraries, Lady Bountiful appears in the idea of feminized labor, wherein her role is defined by the need to civilize library users and to be nurturing and maternal. This resonates with the historical and ongoing colonial nature of libraries and the ways in which these institutions have the tendency to perpetuate white hegemony. The Victorian ideals of feminine domesticity also play into the idea of emotional labor, the combined need to regulate one's emotions and perform appropriate emotions in the workplace, which can have damaging mental health consequences. In the case of library work, this includes warmth, hospitality, sensitivity, altruism, ability to work with children, and missionary mindedness, to name a few. To quote Schleselman Tarango, as we work to locate Lady Bountiful in lists, we can begin to see that it was the very qualities associated, not simply with gender, but also whiteness and feminine form that functioned to position her as the ideal library worker. We can work to recognize them in action and dismantle them. Well, it sure seems that libraries as an institution are not perfect, they're not neutral, and they are rooted in a colonial past. So it's cool to love libraries, but just keep your vocational on check. That's all we have for you today, but be sure to visit our Facebook page or Instagram at Shout for Libraries or connect with us on Twitter at Shout, the number four, libraries. Also check out our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And don't forget to check, check it, out. it out. Let's try that again. Okay. <laughs> One, two, three. Check, Check it out. It out. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so hard? Okay, it's so hard. Okay, let's let's do. Don't forget to. And I'm also okay with keeping all of these bad ones. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. Okay, three, two, one. Check, check it out. It out. Oh. Are we doing a long check? What is happening? Uh, do we normally do a long check? I think we do check it out. Oh yeah, okay. I think this is my fault. I'd be <laughs> <laughs> undermining both of you. Okay, three, two, one. Check, check it out. out. I think that was good. Beautiful. Yeah. I think that was great.
before we wrap things up for this episode, we have some gifts from the public domain as well. Here are some poems about the winter season and Christmas to get you in the holiday spirit. Winter Branches by Margaret Whittemer. When winter time grows weary, I lift my eyes on high and see the black trees standing, stripped clear against the sky. They stand there very silent with the cold flushed sky behind. The little twigs flare beautiful and restful and kind. Clear cut and certain they rise with summer past for all that trees can ever learn, they know now at last. Slim and black and wonderful, with all unrest gone by, the stripped tree boughs comfort me, drawn clear against the sky. Beware of Eggnog by Anonymous. While the little boys cry, Merry Christmas is coming, shall I be as dull as a water drunk log? No, I'll sing you a song, for we bards must be humming, and the burden shall still be, beware of eggnog. When the bowl mantles over the elegant foam, and the steam rises up in a silvery tog, put by the potation, keep reason at home, and think of my warning, beware of eggnog. When Circe the witch caught Ulysses' men, she gave each a dram that soon made him a hog. The identical mixture, tis now as twas then, so attend to the moral, beware of eggnog. When the circle is formed, the glass passes round, old Satan draws night, though as usual, in cog, and chuckles to see good sobriety drowned. Would you frustrate his malice? Beware of eggnog. But why do I rail at one liquor this way? Is no other as fatal from brandy or grog? Yes, yes, they're all one. I mean all when I say, and I'll say but once more. Now, beware of eggnog. A Song for a Christmas Tree by Louisa May Alcott Cold and wintry is the sky. Bitter winds go whistling by. Orchard boughs are bare and dry. Yet here stands a faithful tree. Household fairies, kind and dear, with loving magic, none need fear. Bade it rise and blossom here, little friends for you and me. Come and gather as they fall, shining gifts for great and small. Santa Claus remembers all. When he comes with goodies piled, corn and candy, apples red, sugar horses, gingerbread, babies who are never fed, are handing here for every child. Shake the boughs and down they come, Better fruit than peach or plum. Tis our little harvest home, for though frosts the flowers kill, though birds depart and squirrels sleep, though snows may gather cold and deep, little folks their sunshine keep, and mother love makes summer still. Gathered in a smiling ring, lightly dance and gaily sing, still at heart remembering the sweet story all should know of the little child whose birth has made this day throughout the earth a festival for childish mirth since the first Christmas long ago. December by Eliza Cook Winter is here, let us welcome him on. 
remember old Christmas is near. And when Christmas with all his gay feasting has gone, why then we've the merry new year. Here's a health to the rich who will give to the poor. Let plenty and mercy ne'er part. And though bitter winds blow through the white clouds of snow, no winter shall fall on the heart. Christmas Trees by Robert Frost The city had withdrawn into itself and left at last the country to the country. When between whirls of snow not come to lie and whirls of foliage not yet laid, there drove a stranger to our yard who looked the city, yet did in country fashion in that there he sat and waited till he drew us out, a buttoning coats to ask him who he was. He proved to be the city come again to look for something it had left behind and could not do without and keep its Christmas. He asked if I would sell my Christmas trees, my woods, the young fir balsams like a place where houses all are churches and have spires. I hadn't thought of them as Christmas trees. I doubt if I was tempted for a moment to sell them off their feet to go in cars and leave the slope behind the house all bare. Where the sun shines now no warmer than the moon. I'd hate to have them know it if I was. Yet more I'd hate to hold my trees except as others hold theirs or refuse for them. Beyond the time of profitable growth, the trial by market everything must come to. I dallied so much with the thought of selling, then whether from mistaken courtesy and fear of seeming short of speech, or whether from hope of hearing good of what was mine, I said, there aren't enough to be worthwhile. I could soon tell how many they would cut. You let me look them over. You could look, but don't expect I'm going to let you have them. Pasture they spring in, some in clumps too close that lop each other of boughs, but not a few, quite solitary and having equal boughs, all round and round the latter he nodded yes to, or paused to say beneath some lovelier one, with a buyer's moderation, that would do. I thought so too, but wasn't there to say so. We climbed the pasture on the south, crossed over, and came down on the north, he said, a thousand. A thousand Christmas trees? At what a piece? He felt some need of softening that to me. A thousand trees would come to thirty dollars. Then I was certain I had never meant to let him have them. Never show surprise. But thirty dollars seemed so small, beside the extent of pasture I should strip three cents, for that was all they figured out a piece. Three cents so small, beside the dollar friends I should be writing to within the hour. Would pay in cities for good trees like those. Regular vestry trees, whole Sunday schools, could hang enough on to pick off enough. A thousand Christmas trees I didn't know I had, were three cents more to give them that way than sell as may be shown by a simple calculation. Too bad I couldn't lay one in a letter. I can't help wishing I could send you one. I'm wishing you herewith a Merry Christmas. <laughs>